0: After last Tuesday's election, perhaps we are more ready than ever to hear an apocalyptic gospel, such as we have today. Whatever we may think about the election results, they amount to a political earthquake. Familiar circumstances and ways seem to have been swept aside or at least challenged. We seem on the precipice of changes we cannot predict which makes some uneasy, if not fearful. An apocalypse is a revelation or uncovering of something, often in the midst of unsettled circumstances. When Jesus presented the apocalypse in today's gospel, during the last week of his earthly life, Jerusalem could not have been more unsettled. He had long predicted that his own people would betray him to their Roman overlords who would kill him. The imminence of this was finally dawning on the disciples as they stood marveling at the temple's grandeur. Instead of offering them illusory comfort, however, the Lord told them bluntly that everything to which they might cling for security would be shaken or undermined. The temple itself... Leaders or would be leaders, their physical well being, their freedom, and even the support of family and friends. It was like someone telling us that the Capitol in Washington and this cathedral, which symbolize what we love most, the things that seem to promise security, would be reduced to dust and rubble. It would shake us just as the death of a loved one shakes us, profoundly threatening our sense of security and even our sense of identity. Nevertheless, thank God, today's biblical apocalypse points to something beyond destruction. It ends with the amazing promise that we will be given the words we need and that not a hair of our heads will perish. That last bit must have seemed astonishing, considering what Jesus had just said. Jesus does not sugarcoat his and his disciples' situation, but he offers them hope, even as he highlights the earthquake that was taking place. By your endurance, he promised, you will gain your souls. What does this mean? It does not exempt us from losing literal hairs or from suffering. Like Jesus, we who follow him will indeed suffer in this broken world. But also, like Jesus, crucially, we will have help from above, from God within us and among us, that is so powerful it can overcome all that threatens us, including death itself. We have the antidote to death, to all that threatens our life. Reminds me of a saying by St. Ignatius of Antioch that the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. You can meditate on that. One commentator put the meaning of this passage this way. No part of our real being will be lost or be brought to nothing. What is essential will remain no matter how we might seem to be destroyed. The Jesus who would soon overcome death and the grave gives his followers access to a heavenly dimension that is unshakable, even in the midst of a rapidly changing, threatening world. Given this hope, Luke the Evangelist and Jesus himself encourage us to live a life based on radical trust in God alone. Nothing else will meet our needs. Paradoxically, following a crucified Lord is the only true means of security, the only way to build our lives on rock rather than on shifting, sinking sand. Some of you may be like me, remembering that old Methodist hymn, all other ground is sinking sand. We must give up clinging to material things, to institutions and traditions, and even beloved family members and friends as sources of security in and of themselves. As Jesus said a little earlier in Luke's gospel, those who try to make their life secure will lose it, but those who lose their life will keep it. Again and again, particularly in Luke, Jesus urges his disciples to have such an absolute trust in God that they could divest themselves of all possessions, knowing that the one who provides for the birds and clothes the lilies will certainly take care of them. Their fundamental well-being is in hands infinitely more capable than their own. There is no need to worry, he says. It's hard to believe that. But it's true. Jesus said it is true. (laughs) Imagine what the world would be like if, if we took that to heart. Now this doesn't mean that we should necessarily give up planning and managing and so on. But it does entail a change of heart in which we recognize that we are not ultimately in charge and shouldn't be. When Jesus taught the disciples his classic prayer, which we pray at every single service, he had them and us express radical trust in God, which is, of course, the essence of faith. We start the Lord's Prayer by acknowledging God's sovereignty and pray for that to manifest itself fully on earth as it is in heaven. We look to God for everything we need, summed up in the words, Daily Bread. We then express commitment to God's way of reconciling love, for which we need God's help, and we ask God's protection so that we might not follow false, hurtful paths in the future. Only God's is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, we conclude. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we are turning our lives over to God, trusting ultimately In God alone. Have you ever known anyone who lives this way? No one other than Jesus totally succeeds at it in this life, and few, including clergy, come close. Nevertheless, we know of some, and actually know others, who greatly exemplify a life of hope and trust in God alone, rooted in a loving relationship with God, the particularly exempt, exemplary saints, in ev- past and present. In every case, I would say, these are people of prayer, prayer in which they continually offer themselves to God and seek God's help and guidance. They're always turning to God. In the best cases, I would say the church's nuns and monks model this life for the rest of us. More explicitly than most, they have divested themselves of all that the world looks to for security and have committed themselves to a life focused on prayer and service. Sadly, in my book, King Henry VIII ended English monasticism rather than reforming it at the Reformation, but it was revived in the Anglican Communion in the 19th century And still plays an important role in enriching our common life. These monks and nuns are limited human beings like the rest of us. But the fruits of their radical trust and commitment grounded in prayer are considerable. I have seen this in my interaction with a number of monastics in, for example, the community of St. Mary in Sewanee, Tennessee, and the Society of St. John the Evangelist, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One in order for women, the other for men. And on the whole, I've found these women and men to be wise, giving, peaceful people who accept, love, and minister to others just as they are. One is reminded, of course, of monastics beyond Anglicanism who exemplify these qualities, such as Mother, now Saint, Teresa of Calcutta, Intentional prayer communities outside of traditional monasticism also bear similar fruit in people's lives and in the world around them. And one example is this group that the Archbishop of Canterbury has gathered to uh, their young adults who live there at his home in in Lambeth Palace, London. They're known as the Community of St. Anselm, and they commit themselves to a disciplined life of corporate prayer for a year sometimes longer, even as they hold regular jobs. So we can all have a sort of monastic element in our lives. That's what Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, had in mind in the prayer book, setting up morning and evening prayer. The idea that not just monastics, but all Christians could be praying daily at least twice a day. And uh, uh, next summer, when our uh, Trinity pilgrimage goes to England, we plan to visit with some from this community at Lambeth Palace as we try to see the fruitfulness that regular, intentional prayer can bring. Monastics, who lead what has traditionally been called the religious life, would be the first to tell us that life wholly dedicated to God is far from limited to the monastery or the convent. This is something to which we to which all of us are already committed in one form or another by our baptism. We commit to following Jesus as Lord, loving one another as he loves us, uh, continuing in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. We're already committed to it. God calls us all to offer, as our traditional Eucharistic prayer puts it, ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice to God. As we prepare to focus on Christ's lordship next Sunday, on what we sometimes call Christ the King Sunday, and then as we focus in Advent on the coming of our King in an amazing, unexpected form, today's apocalypse helps point us to the one thing, That is ultimately important. Our Lord's call to a life of radical trust in him and to lives of love rooted in this faith. There is no reason this cathedral community cannot exemplify this way of life, which is eternal. There's no reason we can't, based on common prayer, Spread faith, hope, and love in the world around us. Let us pray for continued grace to flourish more and more in this way. Amen. We believe.